Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November 23rd, 2020. This is episode 2779 of the Survival Podcast. And the, the title of the show today is The Future Belongs to Landholders and Entrepreneurs. And if it would have made a ridiculously, I mean ridiculously long, stupid title that would have never worked in like uh, podcast feeds and in SEO and all that. I would have called it, The Past Belonged to Entrepreneurs and Landholders, and Nothing Will Change in the Future. Because the truth is, this country was built by landholders and entrepreneurs. Now, there's a lot of wailing and gnashing of social justice warrior teeth today over the fact that one time um, you had to basically be a white male landowner to vote in the United States. Yeah, you know, maybe that's because white male landowners wrote the founding documents, and so they decided that they were best suited to do that, which let's take a morality judgment of that and just put it on the shelf, because we can say it's good, bad, indifferent, depending on how we feel at, at the moment or whatever. We can be all triggered by it, or we can say, hey, uh, that probably wasn't a very uh, a democratic uh, way to uh, start a new republic, but... It doesn't change my point. The moral implications of that decision doesn't have anything to do with my point. It just makes my point. It's so much the case that it was land-holding entrepreneurs that were able to write the founding documents and set the course of a new republic. That's how much influence being an entrepreneur and a landholder had at the time. And I would, I would suit that in many ways it still does. Now that, I want you to think about it this way. You might think, well, you know, you can own some land and be an entrepreneur and be pretty successful and not have that much influence, uh, in, in, in the, the, the world of government. All right, fine. This is really not about government. It's really not about politics today. But let's go there for a second. So at the time, there was a pretty small number of people who were landholding entrepreneurs relative to the total population. Okay, Today, you probably have just about as much influence as you would have had any time in the history of this country as a landholding entrepreneur based on what, where you would be within the percentage game of that. Right? How much land is there? How much entrepreneurship is there? And what percent of it do you have? That, that's probably not changed. But again, I want to get away from the political side of this. I'm just pointing out they even they even had the influence politically. The bigger influence that people have always had throughout the history of the world. It's just been more evident here because it was open to more people to do. If you had land ownership and some form of entrepreneurship in your life, you had greater control over your life. See, as soon as we worry about political influence... What we're talking about is how much control and influence you have over someone else's life. Someone else's life. That's what politics is. How much control and influence and power and force and violence do you have access to to control the actions of others? And that is purely a money play. 
And that means that you can be fairly successful and still have almost no influence there. But when it comes to your life, today, as it has always been, if you have a little piece of land that you can do what you want to with largely, and an entrepreneurial mindset and game plan, you have more control over your life than the average person could ever dream of. And that's what I'm talking about today. And specifically, though I won't go deep into it, as it relates to what's going on and what will be going on in the next 10 years with the Great Reset and Agenda 2030. Those two things are not independent, but they're not exactly the same either. Okay? Like, we already covered that, so I won't be beating that up and going down that road today. But I do want to say something really interesting. So, last week, the New York Times came out. The New York Times came out and said, the Great Reset is nothing but a right-wing conspiracy theory. In the same week, the cover of Time Magazine featured, you guessed it, the Great Reset. In fact, called for it and why it's a great thing and why we should all be on board with it. So while the New York Times was saying it's not a thing, it's a conspiracy thing, Time Magazine was saying it's a wonderful thing and it's here and it's, it's now available and we should all embrace it wholeheartedly. Yeah. So this thing is, a, like I said last week when I covered it, is a real thing. And the goal is to move people, as many people as possible, out of the countryside into the cities where they can be controlled, managed, and tracked as a resource. And to level the playing field and make everybody the same. That doesn't mean make everybody's life better, or doesn't mean take the people who have the worst in life and give them a little more. It means amalgamation. Right? In the words of Kurt Vonnegut in uh, Harrison Bergeron, it, it, men were not born equal, but it's government's responsibility to render them so. That's, that's what this is all about. And what you need to be able to do to parry the thrust that is the Great Reset, because you can't fight it. All you can do is not be there when the punch lands, right? Best block is to not be there, in the words of Mr. Miyagi. Is to have a place that you have as a base of operations where you can be largely, not completely, but largely left alone. And some form of entrepreneurship where you can play their game. Because I'll tell you what's not going to go away. The game of the rich guy. The game of the rich guy is not going to go away. They can jack your taxes up all they want, all, all they want to. Here's an example. In, during the, the height of taxation in, in the FDR administration... The top marginal tax rate for people for income above $200,000 was 88%. Roosevelt wanted a 100% tax on income beyond a certain level, right? But it was 88%. That's what he got. The average person, except for the uber poor, the average person in America during the height of the FDR administration was paying about 40% in taxes. This is their marginal tax rate, what they actually paid. Even though it said they were going to pay less, when you looked at all the taxes put together, deductions, etc., they were paying about 40% in income tax, like a working class Joe. <laughs> the rich were paying about 44%. 4% more than the average person, while their top tax rate was 88%. Why? Because the game that can be played will never go away because the people with the money write the law. So we can play the game on a smaller level, and that's what I'm talking about today. You know, I'm not talking about being the next great multi-tenant landlord and, and being worth a billion dollars like Trump or something, uh, running 
uh, high-rise office buildings, which may be a terrible investment in the future, by the way, I'm just saying, right? Um, or being some kind of a baller business owner in general, or owning a thousand acres of agricultural land or, or what have you, and having a modern-day plantation or something. I, like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how the individual with seemingly limited resources, significantly limited resources right now, but some level of ability to earn income, to think and be agile, can right now still relatively easily get themselves onto a piece of land with very few real restrictions on what they can do and build a business. And those people, like me, that's exactly who I am. While the, we, we won't be you know worth a billion dollars, we can still keep way more of our money that we earn than, than the average person can. I should say, then, if you're not in this class right now, then you can. I can make twice as much money as many of you listening to me and pay half of what you pay in taxes. And that has to do with the way I design my life. And guess what? It's completely legal. It's completely legal because what I keep saying, and I keep saying this over and over and over and over and over again until it will go in for you and you'll accept it as reality. 90% of the tax code is how you get out of what the 10% says you have to do. And the wealthy and the people that do proper structuring focus on that 90%, not the 10. But don't worry about the 10. Because you put your effort where you get your greatest return. And one of the best ways to do that today is entrepreneurship and land ownership. That's what we're going to be talking about today from that vantage point. On that note, before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Ready-Made Resources. Um, wouldn't it be great if there was a website that was like an Amazon of prepping or a Walmart of prepping where all the things you could possibly want for your preparedness were available in one place with great service and great pricing and you could just count on them 100% to have what you need and to get it to you and to help you if you needed help. And I mean anything from stored food to stuff to do your own stored food, tactical to practical, guns to gardens, everything in between, solar and wind, you name it. It could all be in one place. It is. It's called ReadyMadeResources.com. The company says what they do and does what they say right in their name there, ReadyMadeResources.com, long-term sponsor of the show. Check them out today. Next up, next up today, KnifeKits.com. We're going to talk a lot about entrepreneurship today. Being able to do stuff is the essence of entrepreneurship. It really is. And KnifeKits.com is a great way to get into a new hobby that will help you be able to do more stuff. To do more stuff. Because not only would you then be able to make a knife, you learn a lot about hand tools, fit and finish, and a lot of these skills are transferable. Plus you end up with something really cool. It's a potential to go into some sort of a business. Definitely can be used to do bonding projects between father and son, mother and son, mother and daughter, etc. Great project. Way to create an heirloom. Really inexpensive. And you can start at just about any level. Learn more at KnifeKits.com. Remember, they do a discount for members of the MSB as well. All right. So let's start off with this. I, I actually did today's Miyagi Mornings on this subject. So it's like if you want to share this concept with somebody... There's an eight-minute video out there on my YouTube channel and on my Odyssey channel now that you can share without having to share this entire episode. So I, I, I kind of condensed it down into less than the time we've been together so far. But one of the things I said in it, and I think is really important to understand as we're hitting this kind of Thanksgiving holiday time where we start talking about pilgrims and people coming here for religious freedom and what have you, 
Yes. Uh, specifically, the Pilgrims, the, the celebrated Mayflower voyage, uh, religious freedom was a huge part of why those people chose to step out into a new world with incredible risk, and many of them did not survive the first year here. Religious freedom was a huge part of that. However, a big driving force along with that, and for many people who came uh, in addition to that group of people, was the concept of being able to own something that was yours, specifically land, but to have the right of property respected. And this is really hard to understand today. Really hard to understand today because can you go to Spain, or especially if you were born in Spain and you are a Spanish citizen, and buy a piece of land? Yes, you absolutely can. Now, is it as easy in the United States, especially if you want the type of land we're talking about today, or larger blocks of land? No, but you can buy and own land in Spain. When we were in this period of time, it was the time of the serf. It was the feudal order. The divine right of kings was well in force, and that, that transcended down into the rights of nobles. And I'm not saying it was impossible for a person who was not a noble to own any land, let's say in England, or Spain, or France at the time, but it was really difficult. And if you didn't somehow have it, hadn't had land in your family handed down, it was all but near impossible. And then there was this place that they were calling America, where you could get on this little crickety wooden ship and sail for a few months, and end up in this vast wilderness, and as settlements and towns began to form, at least there was a base of operations, someplace you could start with some resources, but then there was still this vast wilderness, and some piece of that could be yours. And that's what did it. That's what brought people by the tens of thousands here. Not religious freedom, not freedom of speech, not the flowery words of our declaration or our constitution, because many of them came before that was a thing. It was the ability to come here and to have ownership and have a property right that was generally respected at a time when in much of the developed world it was simply, it wasn't that it wasn't a thing, it wasn't available to you without extreme circumstances. And, and this one is like, a lot of stuff that I say is my opinion, right? And all opinions are subject to being inaccurate. And I try to be clear when I'm, when I'm giving you an opinion. This one is not an opinion. It, you're not going to go read what I just said spelled out that way, right? I, I don't know. I'm not really aware of anybody's work on this subject. I don't think it's something that a lot of people think about, and I don't think it's necessarily a thing that the academic class really wants to talk about. But if you go back and you just look at the situation, if you just look at what it was like, to live as a commoner in, let's say, 1670 or 1680 or 1700 or 1720, anywhere where, where the major influx was coming from into the New World of not commissioned military and commissioned mariners who were uh, just doing 
uh, exploration and, and acquisition. But the private citizenry that was coming here and saying, I shall make this place my home. If you look at what their life was like and what their options were there versus here, it becomes abundantly clear that that opportunity was the primary driver of immigration at the time. The next is, as we, we became a place, we became colonies, and eventually those colonies sought freedom from their, their motherland, obtained that freedom in a bloody revolution, confederated under the Articles of Confederation, and then later uh, reformed a government under the Constitution that we currently operate under as a republic. At that point, as we developed a concept that was widely floated and has been widely talked about all the way up until like the 60s and 70s when Go Big or Go Home came to agriculture was America was a nation of farmers. And it's true, especially for a lot of that period, that the majority of people in the, in the country earn their living from farming, either directly or indirectly. But that is one of those statements that's 100% true and yet leave so much out is to almost be inaccurate while being true at the same time. And what I mean by that is the right way to have put this would have been America was a nation of entrepreneurs. Farming just happened to be the primary form of entrepreneurship that the entrepreneur society engaged in. And farming had so much value because it enabled a person to use the activity on the land to acquire the land. So even the people that didn't get their land in a you know, like a homesteading thing where they said, hey, you can go to Oklahoma and just pick out 40 acres or whatever. Uh, Nicole Sauces, one of her uh, ancestors, went to Idaho that way. They were just given a block of land for going there. Many people did buy their land or acquire their land in some other way. But what that enabled them to do was then say, well, how do I make this piece of land defensible? In other words, be able to fund operations on it, and farming was the main way that that was done. But if you've ever known farmers, and this is the funny thing, a lot of people that fancy themselves being country people, they garden, they homestead, etc., they really don't know any farmers. And I don't mean, well, you have a guy you buy cows from. No, I mean no farmers. When you know farmers, you know that farmers do an awful lot of business in cash money. And some of that business is, hey, you know, well, yeah, I'll sell you some turkeys or something like that, kind of secondary off-the-books type thing. Sure, there's a lot of that kind of agorism there. But there's also just, well, I have this big, giant-ass freaking front-end loading machine that can do things, and this guy down the road needs a stock pond put in. So, yeah, I'll do that. And there's an awful lot of engineering that goes into farming as well. Engineering is not all sending spacecraft to Mars. And some of the things that I've seen farmers do, and I don't mean, I'm not talking about jerry-rigging a tractor so to work. I'm talking about full-on systems development and design. That is who we were. And when we lost that, concept of a nation of farmers that were entrepreneurs. We lost a tremendous amount of the entrepreneurship that made this place special. And it became entrepreneurs that were more into service-oriented industries and things like that. And, and direct ownership of corporations. That was always here, but that became like what the entrepreneur class was. We went from a place where 
most people either were in or aspired to be in an entrepreneurial class to a place where it was very much the minority. And that's a huge part of what we lost. And it's, it's a huge part of why we are so brittle as a people today. We are so non-resilient as a people today. Now, I want to talk a little bit about my four big reasons that I'm so big on owning some land with little to no restrictions that is also not likely to have a, 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 a litany of new restrictions placed on it in the coming decade. Number one is food production. And I don't think there's anybody that listens to this show that would be surprised about that. But I want to talk about like two aspects of that. One is being able to feed yourself, and another one is the concept of being able to produce food for barter and trade. Both of those are incredibly important. And when it comes to having enough land to do something with livestock in the future, where the plan globally literally is to limit the amount of meat people eat in the, in, in the terms of grams per day, it's like 7 or 10 grams per day is what they're saying of meat per day is their target. Now, again, coming from the Great Reset side, this is not like the New World Order where a bunch of people who identified this cabal came up with a name for it. The Great Reset is their name for their own thing. The, 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 when I'm telling you that they want to reduce meat consumption globally to a few grams a day, that is not something that I say I found in some, you know, drogue stones or something written and inscribed on the back of Bill Gates's ass. This is publicly facing information. This is this is what's going to happen. You'll you'll own almost nothing. Privacy will be a thing of the past, but you will have never been so happy. That is the promise they are making to you with the Great Reset, and they are also talking about eliminating meat is a mainstay staple of the human diet. People are not going to stop wanting to eat meat, but meat will become more expensive. And having the ability to produce meat and other forms of protein like eggs, milk, cheese, etc., is going to be a real commodity. And it's not going to be a commodity the way we've always gamed this out in our prepper world of when the shit is the fan, man, two goats will be worth more than a car. Like, no, this is just basic supply and demand. So food production on land and being able to do something with livestock. And that doesn't necessarily mean have you know a herd of cattle or a herd of goats. It might be a flock of ducks and chickens. It might be quail. It might be rabbits. And having that ability so that you can reach out to somebody and say, hey, I have ducks. Ducks make amazing eggs. You have rabbits. Let's do business. And whether that be with cash, crypto, Fed coin or direct barter, I don't care. Food production is, it puts you in the place where you are on equal footing with others that have this capability. The next is personal oasis. Um, I, I don't think we're done with concepts like lockdowns after this is over. I don't think we're done with massive amounts of interference in the lives of everyday people by bureaucrats and politicians. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And I, I can tell you, not just owning land like this, but knowing countless people in this audience that own land like this. We were less affected and have been less affected and continue to be less affected by these lockdowns and infringements upon rights than everyday people. Because instead of having to worry about whether it's okay for us to take a walk to a park, we live in one. 
Having a place that is surrounded with nature and has enough buffer to keep people and things that you don't want near you away from you gives you a sense of well-being and a, a place of operations that is unbelievable. Next is an operational base for entrepreneurship. If you think about it, I run a multimedia company from my home. Could I do that in a suburb in Arlington like I used to live in? Well, I did, but it was nowhere near as effective as it is here. And we'll talk about more about why in the future. But there's so much more I'm able to do here as an entrepreneur, which, again, I'm going to save for a later segment, than I could have done when I lived only a 45-minute drive from here. Not that far. Not that far. And the city's in between that place, right? It's not like I live 45 minutes out from there. I live 45 minutes the other side from there. And it's amazing the difference in what I can do here versus what I could have done there. And then a massive store of value. To me, the one thing that over time has never failed investors is land and real property. Now, that doesn't mean nobody ever lost their ass in real estate. And if you go leverage into a bunch of high-density real estate and you have a recession, you can lose your ass. But if you look at the value of just raw dirt over time, it's pretty much outperformed with risk mitigation factored back in every other form of investing there is. Because it is an absolute finite limited resource. We're not making any more land. What is, is. And every time somebody buys a piece, sets a piece aside, develops a piece, it gets swallowed up in the federal bureaucracy and set aside as federal land, etc. Every time that happens, the resource decreases as far as the commodity availability. So it is a huge store of value. More people have been made into millionaires in the United States through real estate than any other thing. And what I'm talking about is playing that game from far more of a, I'm going to live on function and use this piece of, of commodity. But then I have it. There's an underlying value here that doesn't exist elsewhere. All right. Some ideas that I want to talk about that work even with small unrestricted acreage from uh, an entrepreneurial standpoint. Number one is like, you know, training classes and events and things like that. And I know that not everybody can do that. But I think there's more opportunity to do it now than, than there's ever been before. So here's an ass example. Yes, I have a podcast with lots of people that listen to it, and I have a, a built-in market. But there's a lot of ways to tie into other people's built-in markets. This year, I did a workshop for four days, $500 a person to come to. I sold 65 seats at that workshop in about five minutes. Now, yes, I know how to market, etc., but in the end, that is what happened. You can do the math on that and look at the revenue. And while I put on a really good event, and I spend a lot of money, and I don't make anywhere near you know, all of the money that we collect, we make a good profit on that. Now, I'm going to tell you, in my opinion, based on what I thought before and then what I thought after talking to people, which remain the same, why it sold out so fast this year. The very restrictions that impeded people's lives 
made my event more attractive and people wanted to be here. One of our attendees said, this could be a seminar on watching paint dry and I would still pay 500 bucks to come here because of the people and what goes on here. We basically had a four-day party. We had, with staff and all, about 80 people on site. No masks, no interference from Karen or Kyle COVID, no problems. And if I wanted to be in the business of doing this, I could probably run one of these every other month and pay all my bills and then some and do nothing but this. I could probably do one podcast a week and do that and make that my business model, and I probably would not run out of people to do that with. That is only one way to do things like that. There's other ways to create events and things that go on on your land that you can do that even when they say you can't do it, you can still do it. And you can't do it without the type of land that I'm talking about. You either have to own it or you have to have access to someone who does. Next, it's like shop level work. There's so much that can be done with like wood shops, metal shops, CNC work, 3D printing, etc. Fabrication and building of custom things. Here's an example of something that I saw somebody do a long time ago. And I think this could be done by anybody who really wanted to. I was on a, a lot of uh, Yahoo email lists back when that was a big thing. Like forums and email lists were big things. Now it's all social media. Um, and maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe those old forums were a lot less interfered with. Anyway, one was for SKS enthusiasts. And a guy came up with a rear aperture sight for SKSs that was very much like the sight that you would have like on an M14 or an M1. So it was a rear aperture sight, and the, the, the back retaining pin on the SK popped out, and this thing popped onto it, and it turned out, for the accuracy an SK had in the first place, it held pretty good zero. He sold the ever-loving shit out of them. And I think he was actually using parts for like an M1 or a Ruger or something, and then fabricating basically the components that that site fit into. And he sold the shit out of them. I bought one. I bought one. The only reason I don't have it is I had a very dear friend who really, really liked this Yugo SKS that I had, and I gave it to them as a gift. That's the only reason I don't still have it. I've seen so, and that's I know that's guns, and here's another gun one, but I... I remember when the NEF H&R handy rifles were all the crazy number of people that would like, well, if you want a, a caliber they don't make, get a you know a, a, a .223 barrel, and that puts enough meat in there, and I will you know mill the barrel out for you, and make you a custom caliber of anything that is bigger, basically. So somebody wanted, I remember on one of the lists, somebody wanted a .33806, and the guy's like, get anything with enough meat on it, send me the barrel, and I will turn it into one for you. And he did. Now, I'm not saying any of this stuff is completely without risk. I'm just saying those are a couple examples that predate all this shit going on where things were relatively easy to get. How many things can be fabricated, made, created with a small shop building? And again, when you start thinking entrepreneurially here, I want you to think more entrepreneurially like our ancestors in this country that were farming entrepreneurs. They had this kind of major nut that was their grain production or whatever, right? Or they were a cattle rancher or whatever. But then they had all these little, what we call side hustles today, 
they just that was just another way to make money. So if they had a, a shop and somebody needed something, let's say they were a pretty good woodworker, and we go back to the days when uh, you needed wheels for wagons, and they were pretty good with a spoke shave and whatever, they might, you know, in their downtime, you know, between planting and harvest, they didn't do a lot, they would make some wagon wheels. That's the way I'm talking about thinking about this here. You can turn it into its, you know, your main thing that you, you make your money on, but it could also be this other thing. How about plant propagation? The, I watched people buy, they had no idea how to grow a garden, by the way, every plant they could get their hands on this year. I, I tested some things. I, I made a few plants and just threw them out on next door and said, hey, I got a couple of these. Does anybody want? I like, it was like people wanted to kill themselves for it. I didn't even make any money on it. I didn't really care. I just wanted to kind of see. There's so much that can be done. I've talked about like uh, sweet potato slips. It's one of the easiest, like it's just a, a kid's project in school. But with a little bit of intelligence, you can kind of go to a mass production level. And if you sell 10 slips for $10, right, and you sell, uh, I don't know, 100 packets, right, that's a thousand bucks cash money in your pocket never happened. And you can do that. That's just, and that would be just one example. And the beauty of something like plant propagation is if I sell to people, I get to talk to them. And I already know they buy plants. They like the garden. So I can identify, let's say, through a sale like that, a hundred people in my general area that like the garden. And then all I have to do is say, well, how do you get your plants? What else do you grow? Where do you get them? Where do you pay? You know, and if they say, well, and if most of them are like, well, we buy tomatoes from Lowe's. Well, I know they're paying $3.99 a plant for tomato plants. You can see where that goes, right? One four by two flood and drain tray with six packs in it. And each flush, I can make 144 of those. $2 a piece, which is about half the price of Home Depot and Lowe's price, 288 bucks. Is that enough to live on? No. Is it a nice little piece of extra money? Yeah. And then how many things can I stack into that group of 50 to 100 customers? Peppers, tomatoes. What do you, what do you buy? What do you want? What can't you get? What do you wish you could get? So you start hustling. Little side note here on, on, on hustling. I told this story at the workshop. When Nicole was doing her Kickstarter for Hollow Roast, she hit her goal, and then she hit another goal, and she started hitting her stretch goal. And she went to the big, heinous goal of thirty grand, which she did, which let her completely retool everything. And like a good person, who, or I should say a good entrepreneur, who wants to keep things going, when you start to get that momentum, you, you go with it. So she sent out an email and said, hey, if you've already contributed, look what we've done. Here's what we could do if you would do some more. So I'm like, yeah, I'd do some. It's Nicole, of course I'll do some more. So... I went and just went and just upgraded to the next level. She comes back to me on, on Telegram and says, um, the level you signed up for has sold out. We don't have any more available for you. Okay. Then the next text was, but we can put you in a higher level. What's your budget? And I'm like, is she hustling me? And she wasn't hustling me, but she was hustling. Right? She was hustling. That's how you have to start thinking about these things, from a hustle, a hustle, a hustle ethic standpoint. How do I stack these together? And in doing that, you find a lot of things that are a little bit of money, but it's relatively easy. 
you find a lot of things that are like, this is a good chunk of change. And sooner or later, you find a couple that can be your main income source. What you enjoy, what you're good at, what bet works best for you, all of those things, right? How about beekeeping? I, I don't know a beekeeper who's good at it that doesn't make money. I know one guy, he's a bee maker. He's not even a beekeeper, he's a bee maker. What's a bee maker? He has a certain number of hives, and he splits them. And he's gotten very good where he can split each hive into two nukes plus keep the hive every year. So if he had 50 hives, he could make 150, or he could make 100 nukes every year. And I don't remember exactly how the numbers work out, but that's, that's the basis of it. If you had 10, he could make 20 and still have 10 hives when he's done with it, every year. He makes them all at the same time of the year. He sells them over two weeks, and basically it's two weekends. So two weekends a year, he puts out a thing. If you want bees, you can come get them from me. Cash money only, and he makes about $30,000 a year just on bees. Doesn't really make any honey, doesn't do any wax, doesn't do a lot. Does a little bit of the extraction and all that for himself, but very, very passive. Takes care of his hives, makes sure they're fed, puts thirty grand a year in his pocket from however many beehives he has to do to do whatever he does. All cash money, real work, two weekends a month. And when people are like, well, can I come the week after? No, they'll be sold out. Come or you don't come. And he does it every year consistently. There's other opportunities there, but that is another example. Livestock in general, I think, because bees are a form of livestock. There's so much power there. Right now, we only have about 25 ducks because we scaled way back. We still have people begging us for product from when we were doing it, you know, as a main, a main business. We've raised our price from $8 to $12. Now, all our existing customers, we still stole for eight bucks. We still have the website sitting out there. We put 12 bucks on it, a dozen for duck eggs. So the people would stop asking because we don't have any more and we still have people that want to buy. Why? Because of the product we create. So livestock is, there's a quality quotient in livestock. But there's a lot of ways you can make money with livestock. And a lot of it, can, again, can be cash money, crypto, etc. under the table. If you go back and listen to Quail Keeping with Moon Valley Preppers, a very old show, I'll try to look it up today. But he did this in a garage, one-car garage. And he was producing something like a 1,000 quail in coals every year and over 20,000 eggs. And his neighbors didn't even know it was there. Now, if you can do that in suburbia, think about what you can do. Move down a little bit. Vegetable and fruit farming. I kind of set, broke that out separately because it's different than livestock farming. Well, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. I've talked about things like just coming up with a way that you can make sure that you can produce enough to have something weekly or biweekly year-round. Doing mixes of hydroponics, aquaponics, in-ground growing, etc. And then creating, um, basically, it would be like a micro CSA, but I don't really like the CSA monkeyer for this. CSA is Community Supported Agriculture, and that's where like people buy a share of your farm production, and they risk share with you. I, I think people are pretty adverse to that, especially with new people. But if you have people that are more in like a buying club, and every week they get a box of food, And if you have this kind of property I'm talking about, then you don't deliver. You set up, you can pick up on, I don't know, Wednesday mornings or Saturday mornings or something like that. We've talked about this at length before, but I think there's tremendous opportunities with small-scale food production. Content creation. 
You know, I, this is what I saved from earlier, but my place in Arlington, I did this show every day. I did it for about a year before we finally moved to Arkansas. But this was, uh, this was something that just got so much better when I got out of the city. Like the, the amount of content that I'm able to create. Video content, absolutely. But even show content. Because so much more of what I can talk about with you now is not only things that I have experience with, but I have active, ongoing experience that has evolved over time. So there's things that I've taught that work, and I knew them because I did them in the past. But since I wasn't continuously doing them, I wasn't evolving them into new ways that worked even better. You know, A classic example would be what I did with uh, hydroponics this year. It went through several permutations. I shared them all. They all work. But now there's so much more valuable. That makes the content so much more valuable. If I want to do video production, I have tons of options here. There's, there's so many things I can do here from a content creation point that I couldn't do elsewhere. And then alternative housing, Airbnb, HipCamp, etc. Like, you can become a landlord without being a landlord today. I mean, the reason we, that you hear so much we talk about Airbnb on the show is if you do something like small houses or something, and you rent them through Airbnb, even for a person that lives there for a year or more, they're still through Airbnb. They are not a tenant. They are, they are a basically a, a guest. And when you decide you want them gone, if they won't leave, you can have local law enforcement grab them by the neck and throw them into the street. You don't have to go through an eviction process. The same thing with hip camp and things like that. It's like there's so much you can do with ecotourism, et cetera, as well. And people are looking more and more to get away as their walls get higher and higher around where they live. And they don't even know it's happening, but they know it's happening, if that makes sense. They, when you begin to fence in a wild animal, even if it's a very wide space and they don't see the fences, they start to feel them before they even realize what's going on fully. And they start to behave differently. Like if you're going to take a thousand acres and turn it into a game preserve and you start putting high fence around it. And there's a point where you're not quite done with your fencing yet and it's probably the case that a lot of the native wildlife will bail. And a lot of them will be like, what's their problem? Welcome to 2020 with people. Really. In fact, let me stop here because I just realized in saying that that I skipped the quote of the day today. So let's put it in the middle of the show. Quote of the day today is by Marty Rubin. And boy, does this sum up what I just said. And boy, does this sum up 2020 in nine words or ten, depending on how you feel about hyphens. The fenced-in dog barks at the one running free. Marty Rubin. I'm really digging this, dude. I'm, you're going to be getting a lot of quotes from him in the future. Um, yeah. That's, that's what that's all about. The, the, the dog behind the fence is very upset with the dog running free. Doesn't know why, but he knows what he is. That's all the people behind the masks right now screaming at anybody living freely. But it also has to do with a lot to do with the desire of people to go to places like I'm talking about, even for a time to visit them. And that's opportunity. I, 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 again, I want to stick to with land today. You can make money with real estate in the city. I'm not saying you can't, but for the time I'm talking about today, the, the real key is land away from the city, and it comes back to limited inventory. There's only so much of it. I believe that most new building will be in controlled developments very soon, even in the city. 
There's already restrictions going up in a lot of places that doesn't make any sense. There's a, a, an adjacent county to where I live right now, and it's incredibly rural. Even though, you know, Tarrant County has Fort Worth and, and the surrounding suburbs and all. I don't remember if it's Johnson or whatever, but it's a, that's not right. There's a county to my west, anyway. It's, in, I mean, you drive through there and you, there's, it is incredibly rural. Incredibly rural. There's a piece of land for sale. So when land's for sale anywhere near me, I look at it and it's not really that bad a price piece of land, but I definitely would want to build on it. And I looked for restrictions like I always do. Rural, unincorporated land in a rural county. Could not build a house under 2,500 square feet on it. That was a restriction that's been put in a lot of places did this during the housing crash to preserve property tax rates. Not only do new housing having to be larger mean bigger tax bill, but it artificially propped up the value of smaller houses because there was less of them you couldn't build anymore. That's, that's the light version of controlled developments. I think it's going to get to the point where even in the middle of the sticks, you want to put in a housing development with uh, you know 100 lots and even just sell lots and let people build their own house, the level of micromanagement is going to be ridiculous in the future to where even a rural development is going to have as much zoning restriction and control around it as one in the city. That's coming. That's part of the plan. Now, roping people who are already there into this, that's difficult. Setting things up where you want to build, you have to comply to get your building permits, that's not hard. They're going to do the easy first. The suburbs and urban areas will become highly restricted compared to where they are now. The more restriction, the more people want out, the more limited inventory of where you can go, the more valuable the, what, that which is already there and possessed becomes. I believe it will be about the only way to really make successful multi-generational living possible. Now, I want to explain what I mean by multi-generational living here. I do not mean grandpa died, so grandma moved into a mother-in-law suite to help raise the kids and live there until she dies. I mean that you live on a place, you build a home, or you buy a home there. You put in another structure, eventually, with the help of your children, and your son and his family live there. And your daughter and her family live in another house on the same property. And then eventually when you pass away, one of them moves into your home, and one of the grandchildren can now live in one of the, those houses. And maybe over time there's, you know, five or six dwellings on the property. And this continues to be used and handed down, and the wealth is therefore transferred to future generations in a way that is highly immune to even inheritance taxes. I don't think you're going to be able to even, like right now doing that in the city is already almost impossible. But the only way is going to be on land like we're talking about today that will become almost impossible to acquire 10 years from now. You'll be able to do it, but it'll be very, very expensive and very, very difficult compared to today. There might be people at the time going, it's not that bad, but they have lots of money and lots of resources. Um, and I predict more pandemics, and I put pandemics in quotes in the show notes. Because what I mean by pandemics is I mean... Things like 
what they've done this time. So once government does something successfully and knows it can do it, it will do it again. And I defy you to go to any point in history where government discovered it could get away with a behavior and cease doing it without massive revolt being required, often bloodshed, to stop it. As soon as the state discovers the power, they will continue to use the power. The issue here is not a pandemic. It is the government discovering that in the right type of fear-based emergency, they can severely restrict the lives of people. You can look at what some of these people are doing, like your Gretchen Whitmores, and you can see they are addicted to the power. It is not that they believe they are doing the right thing for the right reason. They are addicted to the power. And so there will be more pandemics, but Dr. Evil type, pandemic, right? It may be a pandemic. It may be some other emergency where they continue to restrict the movement and freedoms of the American people. And the place that this is most prominent right now is the place that it will be most prominent in the future. It's that simple. Next, I want a few things I would suggest for land in general. One, at least an acre of nice laying land. Now, you might have to buy three acres to get an acre of nice laying usable land. Right? Um, now, my other side of this is a half acre of kind of perfectly laying land with the buffer around it so you're not like a half acre, a half acre, a half acre, and everybody's in it like a subdivision. And you can still do a lot with it, especially if there's land that's maybe, it's not your land, but it's not your neighbor's land. It's somehow publicly accessible. Like, a half acre can be a lot. An acre can wear your ass out. Three to five acres is a great size, though. It's big enough to do almost anything you really want and big enough to create that buffer if you're strategic about where you put land. The more you like the idea of multi-generational housing, the more you want to look at larger and larger blocks. Um, next, some buffer from your neighbors. When we looked for our place in Arkansas and we finally found a place, it was on five acres. We had looked at places that were on like five, seven, even ten acres that felt far less free. Because what they were is long, narrow strips. Because the developer wanted to maximize how many homes he could put in relative to the infrastructure he was required to put in, like roads. So it made sense. You make long, narrow lots, and then you advertise. We have five to ten acre lot sizes. But, okay, now I'm sitting on five acres. I'm standing on the front porch of this place, and I don't feel that much further from my left and right neighbors than I did right in the middle of the city of Arlington. That's that's. I'd rather have an acre, an acre and a half, with some good buffer of some sort rather than have, you know, five acres in a little narrow freaking nature strip where my neighbors are not only, you know, not only are they just right there, but they're right there like all the way back and there's no place where the land, you know, widens out. I, I, I really don't like that. So when I say nice laying, at least an acre and some buffer, you got to factor all of that into it. Uh, next, water must be available. Uh, and I don't care if you do if you have enough rainfall and enough infrastructure to make rain catch viable. That's water availability, right? But there has to be water. All the stuff we talk about becomes so difficult without water. Uh, I know ranchers out just west of here that are still trucking water in 
And it, it's gone from something that's been a pain in the ass, but, you know, they're doing cattle and shit, and they're like, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's okay, to being like one of their single largest expenses and threatening the viability of their continued ability to operate. That's, I mean, water is bulky, it's heavy, and relative to what it takes to move it to a place, unless it's in a pipe, it's expensive. So water availability. Uh, the position must be defensible. And I don't mean it the way you likely think for today's show. I am all for a defensible property from the standpoint of if shit's the fan and the thugs are stupid enough to leave their urban shitholes and come out into the suburbs and try to steal and ransack and whatever, that it makes it far more difficult for them to do so and far more likely for them to get shot in the face and buried by a backhoe so that I don't have to call the police and explain to them why three Antifa are dead in my backyard. I, I understand that. That's not what I'm talking about today. When I say defensible, we have a habit of picking the wrong enemy or not seeing the true enemy. Antifa is not the enemy unless you own a business that they're setting on fire. Antifa is a bunch of freaking idiots turning a shithole into a bigger shithole. That's what Antifa is. The people pulling the puppet strings that see Antifa as one of their many arrows in their quiver to create social change, the billionaires behind the scenes, they, they are your enemy. And they are far more a threat to you from with you know things like urban planning and rezoning than Antifa will ever be to your rural home. No matter what kind of bravado people come with online and you know we're waiting or whatever and an Antifa guy in a black mask, rural America we're coming or shit that probably is all made up by right wing lunatics who want to thump their chest and say they'll shoot them. Like that is not a high degree of probability that you'll have to deal with it. I, I put it online with like a a, a you know eight point one earthquake in Texas. It's not completely impossible, but boy, it's not what I'm preparing for. Right? It, it, it's just not likely. But the idea that the suburbs will get swallowed by the urban center and then swell outward and attempt to pull as many individuals into this planned, rezoned economy with distributed low-rent projects throughout the whole thing and restrict activities that people can perform, that threat is real. So when you select your position, it should make that very difficult to execute. And what that what does that is people that are in some way off-grid, even if it's just water and sewer, like if everybody around you has a well and a septic system, you're already in a good position. Now add to it, the land is rather large and rural, so the average homeowner owns an acre and a half to ten acres, So you have a very low density spread out. They don't like that. That's why they're doing this, to avoid that. But it's already there. And people like that tend to be like, you know, screw you. We didn't need you to get here. We don't need you now. And they tend to leave each other alone. So that is a very defensible type of place. And defensible also includes, like, well, what state are you in? How much lunacy is there there already? How much lunacy is there in the nearest city or town to you that's a threat to you? You've got to look at all these things. Next, look for neighbors who thinks, think in terms of minding your own business but also are helpful. Neighbors at large are like, hey, we're here if you need us. 
And you're like, hey, yeah, we're here. And maybe you guys get together. Maybe some of you really get along. But in general, people just pretty much don't care what you do. That was I was able to determine that that's how people were here before we bought this house. It was a big part of the deciding factor because, as many of you listen know, like the land here isn't that great. There's not a lot of soil depth. There's a lot of rock here. Okay, um, but a lot of these other things were so much, you know, at, you know, a nine or a ten out of ten that they offset that. It's like I can bring in dirt. I can't make neighbors who are Karens and Kyle COVID people go away, right? I can't unrestrict my property. So it's better to buy property that's already not restricted. I can get dirt. I can make soil. I would have preferred that all of that was already here, but the freedom, the infrastructure, etc. was outweighed everything. And then no HOAs or POAs or anything like that, unless there's a specific reason, and it's highly limited. So I'll throw in a question-answer thing here. Somebody recently said, what about an HOA if it only exists to take care of the private roads for the community? Fine. If, if there is a limit to how much they can charge you to be part of that, and if there's a limit to the power so that it cannot be expanded. In other words, how strong is the Constitution? When we lived in Arkansas, we had more, it was called a neighborhood covenant. And it simply said you, you can't have more than one owner-occupied structure per five acres. So micro houses and stuff like that you could rent out that would have been fine but you couldn't have subdivided five acres into five one acres and put in five full homes because they didn't want high density population there okay number two was that basically homes had to have a composite roof when you built a home so even mobile homes were fine but they had to have a composite roof I, i don't know why but that was one of the restrictions And then there were provisions for the maintenance of the roads and an annual membership fee for maintenance of the roads. Exactly what this guy's talking about. And then the final thing was there was nothing that could be added without 100% consensus of the property owners. So if you had one person said, no, we're not doing that, you couldn't do it. I was okay with that. I was okay with that because if, if everybody that owns property in a place wants to impose a restriction and no one's forced into that, and they're doing that for the future of the property, and everybody agrees, I'm okay with it. But if there's not some sort of major kind of you know, like nuclear option limitation, then I am always worried that a, even a benevolent HOA will become a Karen HOA, which is exactly what happened to the United States government. It was one of the most limited forms of government ever imposed, and today it is the single largest bureaucracy an impediment on individual rights that's ever been created in Western society. And it's because any government, given any power, will use that power in time to create another power. So the restriction level has to be huge. It has to be at least multi-generational restriction in, in, in your mind, in my opinion. Some things that are really nice to have things that I just wanted to throw in here, surface water or the ability to install it. So creeks, lakes, streams, brooks, anything where there's water on the surface, ponds, stock tanks, or like this land is really nice. There's plenty of clay in this soil, and with a few days' worth of dirt work, there could be a quarter acre or a half acre pond there. That's almost as good as the pond being there because it doesn't cost that much to do in an ideal situation. You really need to be sure that's the case. A lot of people look at land and think, oh, that'll work, and, and sometimes ponds are more art forms than, than, than science. You have to really 
know how to work with what you have to make them work. Plenty of pawns have been put in and leaked. Um, outbuildings. Odds are a property with outbuildings on it will sell for less than you could buy the property for and put the outbuildings on it. It's almost always the case when you put a substantial outbuilding on a property. Now, a $2,000 tough shed, now you might actually make a profit with that, right? But I'm talking about big outbuildings, barns, or like if you've seen my property, I have two steel frame buildings. One's 1,800 square feet, one's 800 square feet. One has one garage bay door, and the other one has three. They're insulated, they have skylights. Again, they're steel frame, steel outer building. Uh, a gentleman that was at my workshop that just put in very, very similar structures said it would probably cost at least $60,000 to $70,000 to put those two buildings in as they sit today. Not each, but total. I paid two hundred five for the property. There's no way that you could have bought the house and the land for whatever it would have sold for and afforded to put those buildings in and not come out ahead buying them already here. So with outbuildings, that's a really good way, especially older outbuildings that are well-built. So like, you know, a steel frame insulated building is not coming down. It probably outlasts the house. And so the longer that building's been there, the cheaper it was to put in at the time, the less the homeowner has an emotional attachment to it and the less it's going to factor into uh, a value assessment of the property. Now, a property tax assessor is going to assess the shit out of it if they can because they want to tax you on it. But when it comes to actually selling, and that may change. That may get to be you know where it's more and more valued and, and, and more and more desirable to have things like that when it gets harder and harder to build them. You see? So that may change, but right now, man, that's a huge thing. Fencing, uh, same thing. It's almost inevitable that a fenced property will sell for less all-in than a property without fencing plus the cost of fencing. So fencing and outbuildings are huge nice-to-haves that are almost immediate equity gains in real money. Next, roads and trails on your property. So if it's a larger property, access roads, access paths, access trails – if they're properly installed. Because I've seen plenty of them, they look pretty good, but you can just go, you know what? A couple good rainy seasons, and this is going to be a shithole. So there's a right way to do that. But when they're properly installed and easy to maintain, that's an expense you don't have to absorb. And again, that's another one. that It will almost inevitably be the case that the land already that way with development will sell for less than the land without it plus the cost of installing it. Uh, local resources. So these are publicly accessible lands, local businesses and local communities and things you can tie into, lakes and streams for fishing, all of that stuff. I put it in nice to have because it's almost always there, but it's something you should always factor in. Like what is the value of this resource being only 10 miles away? And then good Internet service, man. There were several places, as good as this place is for us and what we do. There were at least four properties that we looked at when we bought this one that would have been better as a deal all around. Some of them had more land. Some of them had bigger houses. Some of them had better houses. All of them had better land for farming, gardening, livestock, ponds, etc. All of them. Why didn't we buy them? Because they were such that we could not have run this business from them. We would have had to do what we did in Arkansas, which was rent an office. And all of them were far enough out that renting an office 
was more than an expense. It was also an inconvenience. The commute time I would have had every day. It, it just it just financially and logistically didn't work. I think a lot of things are coming to make rural internet more accessible. But if you need it, don't bet on it being there in the future. You need to make sure that you have it now. My final quick three bullet points here. One, I want to talk a little bit about raw land versus developed land. I think the right raw land deal can be phenomenal. The beauty is you get if you build your own home, etc., you get to do what you want. You need to be really careful, though, to thinking you're going to be able to do something versus actually being able to do something. And if you want to verify anything before you buy a piece of land is allowable there or can be done there, you need more than somebody on the phone saying it's okay. You need something in writing. You need to be able to look at a local ordinance that clearly states that you can do it or the absence. You cannot find anything that says you can't. And don't assume just because somebody across the street's doing it, it's okay for you to do it. For all you know, there's a zone line that goes right down the middle of that street. For all you know, there's a grandfather clause that says everybody that's already done it can keep doing it, but people that have started doing it, that want to start doing it can't. You've got to be really, really careful on buying any place but specifically raw, undeveloped land. The beauty of developed land, as I just went through, is there's so many things that's often on a developed piece of property that cost more to do now than they cost to buy already done. But again, the other thing is, on raw land, often you can get great deals. And remember, you know, not everybody lives in Texas where I do. A lot of this country is really suited to off-grid living. Texas is one of the harder places to do it, uh, just due to climate. But if you can do off-grid living... One of the things you always want to look at is you can get 100% ROI on a solar installation on day one. And this is one of the things people don't believe, but Sean Mills is the guy that, that convinced me this was absolutely the case. If I look at a piece of land and say this piece of land costs me $30,000, and a comparable piece of land in the same area that's on grid would cost me $70,000. And it's $40,000 less to buy the off-grid property than the on-grid property, and they're fairly equal otherwise. And I could put the solar I need on the, on the other property for $20,000. I'm still $20,000 under the on-grid property now. I'm at $50,000 versus $70,000 for the same property. I just got a $20,000 ROI on my property. Assuming I can put enough alternative energy in, for that amount of money to give me everything that I need on that property. And that is a really good way to make the most out of, like, you know, raw land. Next, I want to talk about neighbors again because it's so important. The best neighbors are those you can create community with. You don't necessarily have to join their church if you're not a religious person or something like that. And you really don't want to be in a place that's so centered on something like that that you're not part of that it makes you an outsider. But neighbors that leave you alone are great. Neighbors that leave you alone but want to do business with you are better. And neighbors that have each other's back but leave each other be in places they disagree are best. And it takes one prick to ruin a place. It takes one prick. So I'm big on when you're going to buy a piece of land, actually talking to some of your would-be neighbors. You know, what do you like? You know, what do you don't like about the area? Things. And if you do that, usually if there's a prick, you'll find them. You'll be able to tell. You'll be able to tell a second they open their mouth that they're the prick, that everybody doesn't like, even if nobody says anything about them. You'll be like, oh, this is the prick. 
And it's one thing if the prick lives down the street and around the corner, but if the prick lives next door to you, it can ruin something that otherwise is perfect. And just be aware of that, because I've seen it. and I've dealt. There's a guy that I ended up living next to in one situation where the only reason he didn't find a timber rattler in his mailbox is his wife might have opened the mailbox. That's what a prick this guy was, just saying. Um, <laughs> but you want neighbors you can create community with, because it's going to be so much more important today than it, or tomorrow than it is even today. You can't do everything. When I start hearing people like, I'm going to get a piece of land, and I'm going to have goats, and I'm going to have cows, and I'm going to have pigs, and I'm going to have rabbits, and I'm going to do my own compost, and I'm going to have a plant propagation business, and I'm going to have a farm, and I'm going to sell direct to consumer, and I'm going to do CSAs, I'm going to have a greenhouse. I'm like, oh, no, you're not. No, you're not. And if you do, you will make yourself miserable. You do a thing until it's operational and running well, and then you do another thing until you find your place where you're like, these are my things, and these are the things that I do. And then the things that you don't do that you want, you barter, trade, and buy. And the more you can do locally, the more powerful and the non-brittle and resilient your community is. And the more you can be a piece of... You don't have to be everything. But when people know that guy there, he does these things, and we can count on him, and I do these things, and they can count on me, you build a community like that, man... That's so much what I miss about where I grew up in Pennsylvania, how all that went away over time. It's time to rebuild that because we're going to have to. And one thing about communities is in some of the most oppressive societies, you find the tightest communities because communities are born out of necessity. And I just think that this is the time to get ahead of the necessity. The necessity is coming, but let's build it before it's needed. The last thing, and I really want to drive this home, It has been easier in the past to do what I'm saying than it is to do now. That's true. But it will never be easier than it is right now. Doesn't matter. So I'm not going to say it's easier now than it's ever been. That's not what I'm saying. But it's easier now than it will ever be. All of this is going to become more expensive and more difficult in every way possible over the next 10 years. And then it's only going to get worse after that. So I'm not saying it won't be possible. I'm saying it will be harder. And the time to act is now. Whether that's through working with others and forming some sort of LLC or LLP and getting a piece of land that otherwise you couldn't have afforded and then breaking it into smaller pieces, that would be a, one way to go about it. No matter what, developing a business, an entrepreneurial You know, portfolio of side hustles, really. A piece of land and getting the hell away from the places that are going to be the most restrictive. It will never be easier than it is now. I'm confident in that claim. So hopefully this is giving you some food for thought. We're going into the holiday downtime and all very soon. We have Thanksgiving this week. To me, I'm kind of in coast mode. I do my best for you. But I'm in coast mode from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Then I shut down and I don't come back till New Year's, after New Year's. But there's a lot of time for thinking, planning, and getting ahead. And I'm going to tell you right now what I'm doing. I'm doing things on my property. As good as it is, I'm making it better. And I'm being very disciplined this year. I'm not doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this. I'm the consummate starter, so I'm really bad about that. I am like, okay, the gardens need to be cover cropped, pruned out of what's there, final harvest, and mulched. So you know what I did last week? I did that. 
I didn't do anything else. That's the only thing that I did until it was done. Now, all the wicking beds in the aviary, same. Yesterday, I had a friend coming over midday, so I only got to work for a little while. But I did three of the 12 beds, and there's a big pile of mulch on a cart sitting right next to the aviary. And you know what I'm going to do when I'm done today? That. Do you know what I'm going to do next? That until that is done. And when that's done, I'm thinking the next thing I'm going to do is kind of a retooling inside the greenhouse and get the greenhouse covered. Then, the shop redesign. And I'm going to do the shop redesign until the shop is redesigned and organized and set up with all my tooling and my, my stuff in there for any other projects. And then we'll see. I'm taking that disciplined approach. And I think that the biggest thing I've learned from establishing this homestead is that's what I should have done from the day I got here. And so as you're thinking about the coming time frame, if you want to get onto a property and you're not there already, Do it the same way. The first step is to save this much money, so do that. However, you got to do it. Like Dave Ramsey says, sell so much the kids and the dog are afraid they're going to get sold next. Don't sell the kids and the dog. But if they're not a little bit afraid that it's going to happen, you're not trying hard enough. You save that amount of money. Move into this other career, then you do that. Whatever it is that you need to get where you want to go, break it into modules and pieces. And if two can be done concurrently... Like, you can make saving money and a career shift at the same time. But sometimes you shouldn't, sometimes you should Sometimes, like, I get paid really good for this. And when we get where we're going, I won't need that much money. So let's get partway where we're going first, i.e. adjust our expenses down, stockpile this money, this piece of money we need, as fast as possible. And now we have buying power. Now, let's find this place. What does it look like? Where is it? And whatever you need to get where you want to be, you break it into modules and you, you just destroy each one until it's so done it's overdone and you move to the next one. If you're already there, you've got that piece of land and you have this, this crazy idea of what you want it to be, design the total, pick a piece, do that, don't and, and pick stuff that's easy to start and finish that gives you maximum return. Do it. I want a chicken system. Don't think I want chickens. I want a chicken system. Okay, what do you mean by that? I want eggs. Okay, how many people? How many eggs? Do you want some to sell? Okay, this is how many chickens you're going to need. Okay, what infrastructure do you want to use to do this? Do you want to do some sort of mobile coop? Do you want to use free range? Do you want to use coop and run? Build it. Get it airtight. Then put chickens in it. Then run that for a while. Then say, okay, this is working. I know now I want compost. How do chickens relate to compost? Put a composting system. Put in garden beds. Compost in beds. Grow plants. Have food. Lots of food. Maybe now you need a solar dehydrator. You see how that works. If you build the solar dehydrator before all this other shit, you have nothing to dehydrate. Right? I mean, think this way. In modules with discipline, complete, move on. And, of course, when you complete a module, it's now a living system in, the, in most of these type of situations. So you still have ongoing maintenance. So how much does that cost you? Audit your maintenance. You know, how much time do I spend taking care of my chickens and ducks every day? Where do I spend the most time for the least reward? Where do I spend the least time for the highest reward? How can I automate or change or redesign the place where I'm spending the most time for the least reward? 
and claim that time back so I can have more time to sit on my porch and enjoy my oasis or work on my next project? How do I fine-tune my life so I get maximum return for my efforts? That's the way to think. And this is a great time to redesign that as we go into the holidays. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. You know, on efficiency, one of the greatest tools that I have come across in my life in my kitchen is my sous vide cooker. I love that thing so much. It does so much. It's unbelievable how valuable to me a sous vide cooker is. Things I never thought about doing, like making cheese. I make farmer cheese. Really, really easy. Basically, milk and vinegar. It's simple. But I use a sous vide to do it because it's perfection on temperature. When we had our dishwashing station for our workshop, we were able to just take a big pot of water, stick the sous vide thing, actually a big Rubbermaid tub of water, stick it in there and set it to 130 degrees, throw a towel over it, And when it's time for people to wash, shut it off, unplugged it, took the towel off, perfect hot water, no transferring, no moving around, didn't have to boil it, get cold again, any of that stuff. Um, I took out some sausage yesterday for a friend that was coming over, two different packs, except they were the same. Fifteen minutes before he got here, I realized I had two of the same instead of one of each. And the other one of each was in the freezer and it was frozen. Threw it in a sous vide machine. It was, it was cryovac anyway from the supplier. I just threw the whole package in there. Bloop. Didn't even have to be real hot. I mean, like room temperature. 15 minutes, totally defrosted. I did enough quail legs, quail leg skewers for 80 people. Sous vide it in two batches. Came out perfect. No overcooking, no undercooking. There's so many things you can do besides make the best steak you'll ever eat. And why am I saying all this? Well, the Anova A500... Uh, sous vide cookers on sale today for 139 bucks. And then while I don't have it reviewed because I don't own it, the sous vide precision cooker pro from Anova is on sale for 199. Now the, uh, the A500, which is one I recommend, usually sells for like about 180 bucks. So it's like 40 or 50 bucks off right now. And it's awesome. I looked up why is the pro more expensive. And the only thing I can come up with is it's got 1200 versus a thousand watts. So it maybe heats up a little faster. But it normally sells for $300, bucks and it's on sale for $199. So I have links to both in the show notes. And on tspaz.com, that's where the A500 is, is uh, featured. I don't know how long they'll be on sale for, but you know, it was a sale that started yesterday, and it's still going today. I also wanted to follow up on sous vide cooking real quick on a question that was asked in the past about cleaning the insides out. So um, I've talked about how we run uh, vinegar through ours uh, every so often because we have hard water. And I was thinking, yeah, it doesn't make any sense that you wouldn't be able to open it up and service the inside. And the guy that wrote in said you could, and I never tried. But the A500, the, the, the Anova uh, sous vide cooker, and the Precision cooker both, the big metal sleeve, you just turn it and it comes off. And there's just a heating element in there and a little fan. And the water never actually goes inside the unit. So if you ever need to clean it out, it just comes apart and cleans. I just wanted to add that. Um, last today, I want to remind you guys that you can always support us by becoming a member of the MSB or Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about how to do that. You'll get discounts that will more than pay for your membership on stuff you're probably buying anyway. And it comes out to about 18 cents an episode. Now, song of the day today. This song is perfect for today's show. It's why I picked it. And it's either going to make you so grateful that you've already done what we talked about doing today. Or 
it's going to kick you in the ass, or, final option, it's not a good one, it's going to crush your soul. It's by George Jones, and it's called A Place in the Country. Here's a few of the lyrics. For 30-some-odd years, he faced a grinder in the city, hustling day in and day out, just trying to survive. He bought his wife the finer things and sent his kids to college. That always took what little bit he tried to put aside. But through it all, he had one thing that seemed to keep him going, a dream that someday he could leave the city life behind. I watched his hair turn thin and gray, but his dream never faded. He told me about it at least a thousand times. And you might think that this old man finally made it out to the country, and he did, sort of. Here's the stanza on that. It took lots of overtime to keep his wife up with the Joneses, and more to get his son out of run-ins with the law. The more it took, the more he gave, never once complaining. I don't know how he ever stood the pressure of it all. I never thought he'd make it, but he finally left the city. And now he's got that special little place to call his own. Today I took a ride out in the country just to see him. It wasn't hard to find because his name was on the stone. That stone. The one with the year you were born and the year you died. And the dash that is you after you're gone. That dash is you. And I always tell you to make the most of your dash. You know what? If you're not where you want to be yet, that's okay. That's okay. You shouldn't be crushed by this. And maybe you shouldn't even be motivated if you're working on it. But if you have this dream of one day having that place out in the country, and tomorrow you're not just a little closer than you are today. If next week you're not a little closer than you are this week. If next year you're still no closer than you are this year. Then you are in real danger of this being a dream that is an excuse for inaction and an excuse to make excuses. And if you ever get what you're looking for, it will be when your name is on a stone. Don't wait. Like I said, it has been easier before, but will never be easier than it is now. Take those actions, make them happen, and when they put that dash in print or on a stone or anywhere, have your dash have been spent in a way that did more for your life while you were here and left more for those you leave behind than you ever thought possible. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. For 30-some-odd years he faced the grind here in the city Hustling day in, day out, just trying to survive He bought his wife the finer things And sent his kids to college That always took what a little bit He tried to put aside But through it all he had one thing That seemed to keep him going A dream that someday he could leave This city life behind I watched his hair turn thin and gray But his dream never faded He told me all about it at least a thousand times He always wanted 
Where the birds sing. 